Hello team and welcome to episode 404 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jonathan Nizel. Jonathan is a real estate investor, international model and trainer who is on a mission to spark change when it comes to men's mental health through sharing his own personal journey. Jonathan's story is packed full of challenges, including the tragic loss of his mother a day before his 21st birthday, alcohol and drug addiction, sexual abuse, and unfortunately, so much more. Jonathan is choosing to share his story to inspire others and give them hope that no matter how badly things are going for them, there is a way back. In this episode, you can expect to learn how Jonathan's journey began and what led him down the path of so many challenges, how he overcame both his drug and alcohol addiction, along with how he managed to turn it all around and is able to live his best life today. So without further ado, Jonathan Neisel. Jonathan Neisel, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great, Elliot. How are you? I am really, really well. Thank you for asking. I'm excited to get into your story today, get to know a little bit more about you. But for those who have, might not have come across your name before, who is Jonathan Nizel and what is it that you do? Uh, so who is? That's a good question. I guess I'm still trying to figure that out, um, like everybody else. But I am an international model. I'm a real estate investor and I'm a uh, certified personal trainer. I've been modeling for about 14 years um, the real estate's newer. Actually, I started with the real estate during COVID here in Texas because the, I had the opportunity, and that's kind of a story in itself. And then I've been a certified trainer for about 13 years, and I've kind of put that on the back burner a little bit um, just recently. I still have a very immense passion and love for fitness, but I'm dedicating a lot more time to uh, bringing my story out here and doing stuff like this. And uh, yeah, so... And I am originally from Canada, um, born and raised up north. Um, and then four years ago, I moved to Texas. And that's where I am coming to you from right now, uh, North Fort Worth, Texas. So it's right next to Dallas, kind of in the suburbs. But yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the quick version, the Coles Notes. Yeah, when I was reading through your description and getting an idea of your story, there are many different points in your life where there are different things going on essentially and there's a lot of different turning points a lot of changes to your story as well i want to go back to teenage jonathan what's a teenage jonathan look like um he was obsessed with athletics he was very family oriented but you know definitely obsessed with sports um skateboarding but uh being from canada ice hockey you know uh -huh. I, I grew up yeah. on skates I still play. I still play high, uh, hockey. I usually have four games a week. This weekend, I'm playing a tournament. I have six games this week. Damn. Um, yeah. So it's it keeps me busy. Um, yeah, he was a good kid. I mean, I was just a very like I like I said. I, I, I mentioned I grew up on a farm outside of Toronto, a uh, 500 acre cattle farm, and you know there was lots of work to be done in the cattle farm, and and I learned a lot of lessons growing up at a farm about um, responsibility and hard work and, you know, the fact that these animals um, rely on you, you, there's, there's no days off. I mean, yeah. you, if you don't feel like getting up and you're just like tucked in bed, I mean, it's not an option. You have to go out there. It doesn't matter if it's minus 40 degrees, whatever, like, so that kind of thing. And um, I always like to mention that we raised beef cattle, but it wasn't like a beef processing farm. We raised purebred show cattle. So we would um, do like the show circuit. So these, these were more like, pets than they were, you know, just 
going through and like running them out for beat. So these are very like well taken That's care awesome. of animals, and it was it was uh, it was pretty wonderful, but. Yeah, I would say that's that's me. Very much sports oriented. Uh, lacrosse is also was also a really big part of my life. I became a professional lacrosse player. But yeah, teenage Jonathan was just a just a good kid. You know, getting in a little bit of trouble, but nothing not nothing maliciously. Just kind of, you know, I was probably a little bit too too focused on thinking about sports, and then later in my teenage years, thinking about girls and stuff like that. So yeah, <laughs> which sounds like a pretty normal and pretty happy and kind of fulfilling teenage years. And now I'm interested to transition in the few days leading up to your 21st birthday, where I know a lot of things did change in a real, real impactful way. Can you share the story about the lead up to those days? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a, it, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, things just completely just flipped a switch, just absolutely, just my whole life changed as I knew it. Um, so the day before my 21st birthday, I was getting ready to celebrate my birthday with my mom and to, you know, I was, I had just moved out uh, from the farm. I, I came back from college, spent a year at home at the farm uh, with her. And then I moved out to get my first big boy, my, my first adult job, which was mm -hmm. selling cars at a, a Ford dealership. And I just moved out. And I remember I had the morning off and I got a call from our home number. And I thought I was just like, you know, calling to, to uh, make plans and, and to, plan, you know, my 21st birthday celebration or whatever. And then it wasn't, it was a call that was letting me know that my mother had died very suddenly and very unexpectedly. And that rocked my world, as you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, completely rocked my world. I, like I said, a very family oriented person. My mom was my best friend, my biggest supporter. Uh, I was her favorite child. She wasn't very, I mean, I'm the youngest of four, um, and she wasn't very good at hiding it. <laughs> Are you? Yeah, youngest yeah, of four. Yeah, it is. I know it's me. Like. Oh yeah, I mean, dude, we got away with like got away with anything. It's just like <laughs> I could I could do no wrong, but it just it just shook my whole world. I remember thinking. I remember so like I said, it was the it was the morning when I found out, and I had to be here or there and and head back and and you know go and do all the things you have to do after something passes away and. I remember looking around and I remember uh, just wondering, like, how are people still going about their day? How is McDonald's still open? How, like, why isn't this all just shut down? Like, my life as I know it is completely, like, well, I thought it was over at the time. But my life, as I, you know what I'm saying? And that's kind of, that led me, that led me to later on in life to realize that, like, these things happen to people and... You never know what people have gone through or are going through as they go through their days. And that's why I think it's really important to treat people with the utmost respect and to really like lead with that. I don't care if it's the person who's delivering your DoorDash or, or no sponsors um, or, you know, if it's your, your, you know, some whoever you work with for or whatever, your parents. I think everybody deserves that utmost respect because you don't, you don't know what people are going through. So, yeah, that completely rocked my world. Um, it was... Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, as you can imagine, it was it was such a, such a formative time in my life. I was just kind of transitioning into yep. adulthood. I mean, I thought I had it all figured out. You know, twenty years later, I realized how little I knew back then, and I'm still trying to learn now, obviously. But it just completely uh, changed my life, and yeah, I guess it all just started. Uh, things just started from there. It just kind of started to spiral from there, and there were ups and downs, and 
Yeah, that, that was that's that moment in particular, though. The, the 21st birthday, that happening, and then I guess I can just keep going on with um, soon after that, I was diagnosed with having severe anxiety, uh, clinical depression, self-harm, panic disorder, and suicidal thoughts. And 20 years ago, it wasn't talked about as much as it is today. No. And I love how it's being talked about a lot more now. Because I didn't know what anxiety was. Like, I was lucky enough to have grown up in, in the time period that I did where, and, and to have the life that I did where I didn't know what it was. I just, I didn't. So I thought I was going crazy. I didn't know what depression was. I didn't know anything of those things. And slowly learned how to educate myself on it. But my first reaction was to... I mean, I always drank in college and I, you know, I like to have a good time, like to party, you know, and like I could keep it in check, but I noticed that like my problems went away, you know, if I had like, you know, 10, 15 beers at a time. Mm. And well, so they didn't I go just... away, but at least you forgot about them during that moment, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's, it's the perception of it's, it's going away, but it's just, it's the, it's the short distraction of that period. So I leaned really hard into that and like when I say really hard, then I was, you know, became a non-functioning alcoholic. I became a professional, professional lacrosse player first, which, you know, was, uh, an achievement that I'd always wanted to, uh, to something that I wanted, always had always wanted to achieve. And, but then it just became too much. And I was, you know, trying to play lacrosse. Lacrosse didn't pay that well. So I still had a full-time job. I was working for my father. He owns an, an architecture design firm as well. So I was working for him there and I was a drunk. I was a, an alcoholic. I was not functioning for probably about three and a half years of it. I was really just, you know, checked out, just, just trying to numb myself, I guess, comfortably numb myself as much as possible. And that's the path that I, I, I you know, I didn't choose, but that's the path that I was going down. And yeah. I had gone, like, had gone down. So, yeah, I mean, looking back, I mean, the, I mean hindsight's twenty twenty. We all know that. Like, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was that. And then I got really lucky because I got very sick at the age of 25 with a uh, severe case of acute pancreatitis. And that's inflammation of the pancreas. And that's brought, that was brought on by drinking. Right. And... I got a very severe case of it to the point where my doctors who were working on my case told me that like after I'd been in the hospital for a month, I had to have uh, five blood transfusions. Um, I lost 60 pounds, 40 pounds in the first two weeks. No way. And I almost died twice. And my doctors were like, okay, uh, you know, this is the kind of severity of pancreatitis we see in somebody who's, you know, 70 years old and, you know, has been drinking for 50 years. Like you, are, we don't know if you can have one drink or we don't know if you could have, and, I, and by that point I was like, listen, I don't want to have any drinks. What I just went through, you know, laying in bed those nights alone, you know, you're 25, you think you're invincible, you think, you know, the whole world, whatever. And that was like such a wake up call for me with regards to drinking. And I was like, I, I just, I just said that I do not want to, test that and ever be in this situation again. 
So I haven't drank since that was 16 and a half years ago. And wow. I guess so that was the four years I was going to say after your mom passed away on your 21st birthday. And then four years later, after a lot of reckless drinking, a lot of drinking in excess, that was what that led you to within that time frame. Yep, exactly. Exactly. There was a couple of years where I was kind of keeping it together or maybe like a year and a half where I was kind of keeping it together. And then some more family stuff happened and then, and then it just went off the rails. And that's why I say it was about three and a half to four year period of that, that led me to when I was at 25 and it's what I needed. Yeah. So you said that obviously hindsight is 2020 and looking back now, what would you have said to 21 year old Jonathan or 22 year old Jonathan who was going through all of that? What do you think that you needed to hear at that time to help your life go into a more positive trajectory, right? You're a professional lacrosse player. That career obviously didn't pay super well, but it was probably very meaningful and fulfilling as well. It was the goal for you too. What would you have said to 21-year-old Jonathan and maybe someone who's in your position right now, who's 21 years old, have dealt with some trauma in their life and are leaning on alcohol in an excessive way? What are your words to them? So the first thing I would say, um, that's a great question actually. And the first thing I would say, I thought about this a lot, is short-term distractions are not the answer. Short-term distractions... Um, and there's so many different ones and we can get, we'll get into this as we, as we talk about it more and more, but short-term distractions are exactly that. They're a short-term distraction. And then when you come out of that, when you sober up or whatever it is, you know, things are just the way, the, the same way they were or worse. And I needed to, and that's the thing we talked about before with it not being, like being talked about mental health wise. I had to educate myself on what was going on. And that was a big thing in understanding and mm. educating myself on like, what is actually going on right now? Because I didn't, I didn't know what was going on right now and know how to deal with those feelings. And I would say that therapy is a very powerful and very useful tool. Because at that time, I had the mentality, and I had it for the next 15 years, I had the mentality of therapies for wimps, I'm not going to sit there and pay somebody to judge me for the things that I've done. I'm not a loser. All these things that I had in my head about therapy. And I was like, nah, I'll just figure it out. I'll just figure it out. But, and I went to a therapist around that time, but I wasn't in the right headspace for it. I don't know. I remember we had like four or five sessions because everybody around me is like, Hey, maybe she would talk to somebody. And I was like, fine. Like I finally relented. I was like, fine, I'll go talk to somebody. And I just wasn't right in the right headspace for it. I just didn't, we didn't connect as, as well. I wasn't emotionally mature enough to be able to accept and, and understand the things that they were talking about and the feedback they were giving, giving me, uh, to me. So yeah, th those would be the big things are like, learn what you're dealing with. Don't take the easy road of the distractions because I did and use my story as a, uh, you know, that's one thing, that's one reason, reason I want to tell my story is like, uh, for, like you said, for people who might be going through something similar or as a cautionary tale, like, don't do this, <laughs> like, stay away from this avenue, like, by all means, I mean, I've got some cool stories along the way, but by for the most part, don't do that. And then um, therapy is a very powerful tool and talking about it. And that's another reason why I want to do it now and talk about it now is because uh, I continue to open and continue to uh, continue the conversation. 
Yeah, and I have a lot of empathy for your situation, full stop, that you experienced when you were younger, but mainly due to the generation that you lived it through, right? 2003 was 20 years ago, and I cast my mind back to maybe 10 years ago, and it's not being spoken about then, let alone 10 years prior, you know? It's still, like, if you look at some series, especially when you watch, like, an older series, like, they really, really make out, you know, psychology and being in a psychologist chair or a therapist chair to be a bit of a joke, to be something that quote unquote crazy people do. So, and that's, you know, only if you cast your mind back, you know, between six and 10 years ago. So adding another 10 years onto that and asking a 20 year old, a 21 year old boy to go and talk about his problems, like it's almost, yeah, it's not even, it's not even heard of at that stage, right? It's really not even heard of that much right now, let alone 20 years ago as well. So yeah, it's challenging for the fact that you lived through it during that generation as well. Do you think you would have responded differently if that, obviously we don't want it to happen today, but had you been living in this generation, you know, you were born 20 years later, do you think it would have been a different outcome? Yes and no. I think it would, I think it would have because of hearing the conversations and, and like you said, it being talked about more and understanding more so. But I also think that there is mm. a part of my personality that um, would have still taken me down that path to some extent. You know, say, you know, like a, a, a you know, 20 year old Jonathan in this day and age who drinks and stuff. I still think that there's a, I have a, a gene or something that's an addictive gene that would have, you know, taken me down that path. Probably not as severely, but I think to some extent it would have. But I've, I, like you said, I, I, I would have been a lot more open to seeing therapists, going to therapy, like, and knowing what I was dealing with, because I would have heard about it. I would yeah. have heard about it a lot more. You hear, you hear the words anxiety, you hear the words of depression, you hear those things talked about a lot more. It wasn't a thing back then. Like it was not even, like you said, it wasn't a thing. And if it was a thing, then it was usually, like you said, it's like a punchline of a joke in a sitcom or something, or like, you know, something or like, you know, uh, whatever, like. That's it. And at that stage in your life, you probably have never really, maybe you didn't even know anyone who had been to therapy or had been to a psychologist, right? Whereas now, I don't know what the life is like of a, a late teenage boy or someone in their early 20s, but I imagine they have friends in their class who have experienced that or their parents have or a family member has just due to the sheer amount of people that I speak to, you know, in my client base who have seen therapists now, like I know that they have kids, right? So they know that, you know, hopefully I would like to think that their kids would know that. So, you know, at least you would have someone to share those experiences with. With, you would feel like less judged as well it might like you said feel more normal but as we you know as we always look back it's like we weren't born in that time so we just got to accept the the card that the cards that we were dealt and with that being said i want to transition into those next years of your life you know you go through that real real profound physical situation at the age of 25 what are the next five years of your life look at like as you progress towards your 30s do you turn your life around at that stage you mentioned you haven't drank since then so that's a pretty big step yeah, I appreciate that. So yeah, I had um, this fall will be 17 years sober from alcohol. Um, so I go back to playing lacrosse. Now healthy, you know, sober. I have the best season of my life. You know, I'm just playing like better than I've ever played. And then I had a career-ending knee injury where I tore a bunch of ligaments in my knee, and I was, you know, 26 at the time. And I I was playing indoor lacrosse, which is a much more physical sport than uh, maybe some people are, are familiar with uh, field lacrosse or not at all. But it's a very physical sport, very much more like hockey. Fighting is allowed, that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, going to work with black eyes and stitches. I still have, you know, some scars hidden under my facial hair and stuff. Uh, so I was like, okay, maybe this is my sign that it's time to call it a career. Like I, you know, I went to college, played lacrosse. I, I made it to the pros. You know, I, I, 
achieve that. Maybe it's time to set that aside. And then I got by, I got into shape and I really started to appreciate a fitness. Like I said, laying there in the hospital bed and, and realizing that you're not invincible is a big wake up call. And the ne- when I got out of the hospital, next time I went to Subway, maybe instead of getting you know meatball with triple cheese, I <laughs> on white bread. I got uh, turkey with no cheese, you know, and I slowly started to learn about fitness and to make that a priority. So having been in a better shape, my mom actually was a model in the late 70s and early 80s, and I thought I would try some modeling. So uh, at 26, I went to, I found like the top four, I believe, agencies in Toronto, went down for some open castings, got some contract offers, and I find, signed my first uh, my first modeling contract Uh almost a year to a, to the date. I think it's like 14 months after I got out of the hospital from the year prior. So it was a very uh, interesting year for me. So I start modeling and I start working out and stuff, but then that addictive part of my psyche kicks in where it's like, okay, and my dad always says this is my greatest asset. My worst asset is when I, when I do something, I do it to the nth degree. You know, if I'm going to Skateboarder, I want to be a professional skateboarder. I didn't become a professional skateboarder, but I, you know, I put that much time into it. And you know, sports, I want to become a professional. Um, drinking, put myself into the hospital for, you know, on my deathbed. And then fitness, then I started to work out obsessively. And I figured, like, well, I mean, I'm working out, I'm doing a good thing. But then, you know, learning that it took me a while to learn that line of what's necessary and doing the right thing. And then going too far and being obsessive about it. So I, 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 that took a long time to figure out that as well, because it was also my release. It was kind of meditative. It was, you know, really important to me to get in there. And, and obviously I saw the changes in my body and, and the changes, not just aesthetically, the way I felt, you know, I felt better. I felt stronger. I felt healthier. I felt, you know, all those things. Um, and then I started traveling for modeling. Uh, my first stop was Cape Town, South Africa, which was fantastic. Um, spent about six months there. And then I, my second stop was Miami, actually. And that was another one. Um, so I guess you could compartmentalize. So that like post-drinking and then to my traveling time in, in modeling. Like, so that just kind of was its own. That time period. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, because something else happened when I got to Miami, I got to Miami and I'd been there for two days and I was sent on a, uh, casting and I remember I, I still hadn't gotten a place to live yet. I had just been gotten home from Cape town two weeks earlier. And then I drove from Toronto all the way down to Miami. Um, super long drive, but it was fun. And I went to this casting at night and my agent said to me, this guy's a bit of a creep. and but if he likes you, he'll book you a lot. And he wants to go see you. He's a swimwear and underwear designer. And you're going to go to his house at like 8 o'clock at night and whatever. And I was like, okay. like, And you have to understand, too, the, the modeling scene and the whole the world, as we've learned before the Me Too movement, was a very different place. You know, people – it was a very different place. So especially with modeling, though, because it's so body-oriented. It's not – unusual to walk into a room with a stranger for a casting and just take your clothes off down to your underwear. I mean, that's just, you know, you're there to, to, to whatever, to do a casting for an underwear shoot or whatever. 
So I was doing uh, doing this casting, and I was at his place and doing some changes and in and out of the bathroom and stuff like that. And long story short, he basically just caught me off guard, pulled down my pants, and sexually like started to sexually assault me, started to fondle me, and and before I even knew it. And I just, you know, I I, I, I froze first of all because I, you know, two two years earlier, I'm fighting guys you know, six foot four, 230 pounds on the like lacrosse, you know, thing. I had no problem, but this is just like, you know, I, I didn't. And then finally I, I kind of came to, I was like, you know, do not touch me. I pushed him away. Do not touch me. You know, changed, stormed out. And maybe I tried on one more pair. I don't know. I was, I was in such a, I think my mind, my, my mind's blocked a lot of it out. Cause I, I don't remember the guy. I don't remember his name. I don't, if he walked right by me today, I couldn't tell you what he is. I think like my mind's just blocked that out. So that happened. And I was dealing with a, I was already starting to deal with a case of body dysmorphia because I noticed when I got to South Africa, I was much larger. I saw these guys on the cover of men's health and stuff like that. And all these other models. And I'm like, sweet, I got to keep working out like a professional athlete. So I was, you know, pressing the the heaviest dumbbells and all that kind of stuff and carrying a lot of muscle. And then I get next to these guys and I'm like, you know, twice their size or like 40 pounds heavier than them. And that's a very tough thing about modeling is, you know, comparison is the, th the thief of joy, but you look at the other people around you and you see them booking this or that. And you're like, why not me? Like I spend twice as much time in the gym. Why not me? Maybe I need to be more like, this person or maybe more like that person. And I was starting to have those feelings and I basically decided that I was going to slim, like lose all the muscle, just work on getting really lean, um, just running and, and abs only. I quit lifting weights and I would just run, you know, miles and miles at a time, like six miles a day, six to 10 miles a day and then do abs. But I still had this, these feelings and now this new feeling of trauma that I wasn't dealing with. And I was just pushing this off to the side, which then led to about two weeks later, I started my eight year long battle with an eating disorder. And that was, uh, I always, I always tell people I, I was like, I, I guess it's, I don't know if it's even a term or whatever, but I, I say I'm a, I was a functioning bulimic because I would, I would eat my, you know, pro, my, my proper healthy meals throughout the day and not bring them up or whatever, not purge them. But it's when I started feeling my feelings and when I wasn't at the gym and I wasn't working and I wasn't doing whatever and I was alone. And that time is where I needed something to boost my serotonin or I think serotonin. Is that the happy point? Yeah. Yep. Boost my serotonin. So I would just go get, you know, a hundred dollars worth of junk food and just sit there and eat and just eat and eat and then regret it. And then, you know, just purge it up. And that continued on for, like I said, for a better part of eight years, but I was always very, you know, uh, like I said, very regimented about eating my meals properly, taking my vitamins properly, making sure that I was getting my nutrients in. But then I was had that dark secret, which was, you know, this is my, my release. And a lot of my, all of my addictions for the most part have always been very insular. I wasn't like a, Hey, let's go out and party kind of guy. Like I was like a, I'm going to go home and drink 30 beers by myself. 
you know, like that kind of guy. Like I'm going to go home and like get a bunch of junk food and do this. Like it was, it's all very much that kind of thing. And then I learned later on, it was feeling your feelings, you know, having to deal with being alone with, with yourself and feel your feelings. So yeah, that, uh, that went on for quite a while. Kept traveling, um, went to New York next, you know, and also too, like when you're in these situations and you're in these big markets, you know, and especially back then you're like, I'm, I'm in Miami, like this is the big time. So you don't want to ruffle feathers. I didn't even think to tell anybody that that had, had happened. First of all, cause I was embarrassed, ashamed, um, disappointed, mad. I mean, I was all those things. Yeah, of course. But also because I didn't want to get blacklisted and not get work because, you know, that was happening as well. So just, you know, talked that down, went to Miami or sorry, from uh, New York, I went to Miami. Sorry. Other way around from Miami, I went to New York and spent my first uh, summer in New York and was, you know, still going through the same things, working out too much, you know, binging and purging. And then, I went to London, actually, London, England, right after New York Fashion Week, and everything was great. I mean, as far as great goes, everything looked great on the outside. I was really starting to look very, um, I think, like, for my skeletal structure, I was really starting to like see the effects of just running, doing cardio, and then being bulimic. Like, I was, it, I just got to a very unhealthy shape for myself, and... That's another reason why I want to tell my story too. Like kind of a bit of an aside is like people don't realize that like men have eating disorders too. And, you know, these and these addictions and these afflictions, they don't choose by gender. They don't choose by tax bracket. They don't choose by race. They don't choose by, you know, any of these things. They can affect everybody and anybody. And, you know, that goes more to the point of like, you know, what you see on the surface is not, you know, there's a lot more. Just don't touch a book by its cover. Exactly. So. Because I think that, you know, had someone seen, I know Instagram probably wasn't what it was when you were back doing that. But if someone sees your Instagram profile, they're like, hey, Jonathan's traveling from South Africa to Miami to New York. He's now in London. He's getting books by all of these places. He's living the dream, you know, and that's what people are thinking. He's got the dream physique. He's got everything going on. But deep down behind the curtain, you're struggling with you know, it's probably still grieving the loss of your mother. You probably didn't really fully deal with that. You know, you're kind of mourning the loss of your professional lacrosse career. And then you're transitioning into this world where you've just been sexually assaulted. And it's, you know, enormous to think of, like you said at the very beginning, it's like what other people are going through that you just don't see when you just make that assumption. And that's why I think, like you said, everyone, doesn't matter who they are, deserves you know that baseline of respect and compassion because you really don't know what's going on behind the curtain. So I think it's an important point to make. It's very true. And that's exactly why like, I want to do what I do because at a lot of times I'm just a regular guy like everybody else, obviously just trying to live my life and I'm trying to just do the best that I can to be a good person, to learn every day and to treat people with respect. But a lot of times people do see like, oh, there's Jonathan, there's the guy who's the international model and whatever. And it's like, exactly like you said, and, and like we said, it's just what you see on the outside is not a reflective of what's happened on the inside. And, and to open up about these things, it's very still, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's necessary. I think it's part of why I've gone through these things. So anyway, that was kind of an aside, but so I get to London and things are good, you know, works going great. It's fall in London. So the weather's, you know, crap, but like, it's whatever, at least 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I was living in Chelsea with a lady who was, I was like set up through the, uh, through the agency. She would rent out her, a room to a model. She was a wonderful lady, you know, it was great and work was going great. And then all of a sudden the phone stopped ringing and just, it got, you know, so I just would go to the gym. I'd work out for two or three hours. I'd go to Marks and Spencer's or whatever, and I'd get a bunch of food. I'd go back. She'd be out for the day. I would eat a bunch of, you know, bad food. I would do my thing. And that was the cycle for like 18 days. And I was just like miserable. So a buddy of mine from Toronto as well, we had actually met in London, but he was from just so happened that he was from Toronto. He's like, let's go to Amsterdam for the weekend. And I'm like, cool, let's, let's get out of here. Like, yeah, let's, it's cheap. You know, let's see something. I'm tired of seeing, you know, rainy London and just sitting here and watching top gear reruns like constantly. So we went to Amsterdam and of course, when you're in, in Amsterdam, you got to smoke, you got to like, you know, that was kind of my, my mentality. I had been completely sober. So I, I'd smoked uh, weed in college a bit, but I'd given it up when I was drinking because I found that when I was drinking and I was in that like happy drunk place and somebody passed me some weed, it would automatically, it would, all, it would put me over the top where I'd get the spins and I'd feel nauseous. And so I was like, drinking is more important to me then weed is, I'm going to cut that out. So when I went through pancreatitis and went through that, I was like, okay, I'm going to be sober now. I'm going to like not just go right back to smoking weed, even though I went to fitness and then went to eating. But I was in Amsterdam, you know, went in Amsterdam. I remember sitting there in the coffee shop and, you know, smoking a little bit. And that was, you know, we, we were there for the weekend and just walked around and got lost and, you know, went from coffee shop to coffee shop and just had a pretty tame time, I guess, as far as Amsterdam goes, you know, just getting high and eating some food and stuff and just kind of walking around in the rain. And it was, you know, it was a fun, but that sparked my, um, addictive personality. And I spent the next, oh, gosh, I don't know, I guess it must've been eight, another eight years of trying to quit smoking weed. Cause as soon as I got back to London, I was like, oh, that felt good. I want to do that more. Like that's how my mind works with the addictive, like personality and addictive mindset. It's like, my mind says, Oh, that felt good. It's like, Oh, I want to do that. I want to do that a lot. And I want to do that like more than I want to do the things that I should be doing. Like I, I want to, I want to do that. So I got back to New York and all my you know buddies who I knew that smoked, who I usually like, would stay away from. I was like going to hang out with them. And then, you know, I would just kind of, I decided to move back to Canada, put down roots, start my own fitness business, get a dog be back around family, be back around my dad. But I now had this weed addiction. And I know people say weed's not addictive. And but it is, it absolutely is. And whether your body physically craves it or not, I don't know the science behind it. But I know that it almost ruined me financially, it almost ruined it, my uh, relationships, it, it ruined relationships, it ru almost ruined my family relationships it took precedent over everything. So yeah, I, I spent the next number of years dealing with that. And I was always very good. Again, I was like, I was, I'd wake up, I'd have all my clients, I'd train them, I'd go to shoots, I would do that, I'd go to the gym, I would do that. And then I come home. And that's when it was like, Oh, I'm alone now. Like, I need something. So I would just sit there, I'd smoke the rest of the night away. I was smoking, I don't know, I, I, just ridiculous amounts up to like, two ounces myself a week, just ridiculous amounts. And 
then I was also taking um, Adderall because, you know, I heard that was a great way to like lean out and get focused and stuff. So I started, uh, I was addicted to Adderall as well for a number, for a while. And I'd be up on these, like, if I had like a three or four day stretch, I would be up for like, Elliot, no joke. Like I'd be up for three or four days straight. Damn. Just awake, like just, you know, tweaking out in my apartment, just on these, these binges. And then I, uh, I also was doing nitrous, um, you know, like the, the balloons or whatever. Um, they call it different things around the world and that stuff. They call it hippie crack because it's like addictive, like crack. Thank you. I've never done crack. And that's one thing I'll give myself credit for is I always did. I always tried to stay on the baseline drugs. Um, I mean, Adderall is not really baseline, but stay on the baseline drugs, but I would do them a lot because I knew the moment that I took uh, cocaine or something, for example, I was like, it's over. Like, there's no, com- there's no coming back from that. And a good example of that was my, my fourth uh, drug addiction that I had to work through. And that was, um, so I was addicted to these over-the-counter uh, muscle relaxer back pills. And I would get them and I've been taking them for years. And like I said, they just sold them. They were on the aisle, just regular back pills. And, you know, I'd have some back tweaks from working out or from like old lacrosse injuries. And I would just take a couple and, you know, help loosen things up. So I finally got to a place where I, I, I hit, people talk about rock bottoms. Like I've had dozens of rock bottoms where, you know, you just, I've, I flushed, I can't even tell you how many times I've flushed weed down the toilet, I flushed Adderall down the toilet, you know, I threw all the whippets away, you know, just saying like, this is it, like, I'm done with it, I'm done with it, I'm done with it, like, I have to be. And then I'd go back to it. And then I, you know, I'd be in the mindset where I like, I, I really don't like the person that's making me, I really am not living the life I should be living. And I would flush it. And I would be like, okay, I've got the strength, I can do this, flush. And then, you know, those feelings start bubbling up. And I'd be like, okay, well, I got to go back and get some more of that. So slowly, I I had a, a really bad experience with weed. I was, it was starting to like, kind of turn on me, like, it wasn't a happy, fun thing to do anymore. So I finally quit that, thankfully. And I got to a breaking point with the, the nitrous as well, where I remember I came home from at a shoot, I went to a restaurant supply store, I told them that I owned a banker, a bakery. And I got 300 cartridges of nitrous for myself. And I sat there and I was like, party. And as I was sitting there, like 300 is a ridiculous amount. And as I was sitting there, I was getting more and more depressed. And I broke down. I was sobbing. I got like three quarters of the way through them. And I was just looking at like everything. I'm like, I can't like look, this is, is this who I am? Is this what I want to be? Went over the garbage disposal, dumped them all. And I said, that's it. This has to be it. I'm done with it. Threw out the ones that were still uh, unused, everything, threw all like everything away. And I, uh, so, but I, I saw these feelings. So I went and I got these back pills and I noticed if I took like, you know, it says to take up to 12 a day because they had 500 milligrams of methocarbamol, which is the active uh, muscle relaxing um, ingredient and 200 milligrams of ibuprofen. And I would notice like when I was smoking, if I took like three or four or five of them, then I'd kind of feel a little bit looser. Like, 
I'd get, I'd be high, but I'd be like, oh, I kind of feel like a little bit like a little extra. So now having cleaned myself of all these other, um, other substances, this was the only thing left. So the final one, yeah, the final one. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to lean on this. And I started taking them and I started taking a lot of them. And like I said, it, it said, you know, don't exceed 12 per day and no word of a lie. I'm not proud of this. It's just, it's the fact of the matter. I was up to, and I was taking 100 pills every single day. I was taking five, uh, 50,000 milligrams of methocarbamol and 20,000 milligrams of ibuprofen every single day. I would go in, I'd buy the generic version, which was like $38 and change. I would just dump out like a handful of like 30, swallow them, whatever, next one. And every single day I would repeat that. And I would like, first of all, it's incredible what our bodies are able to take tolerance wise, because if I just went and did that today, I would, you know, but I'd slowly work myself up to, and I think it was like four to six months of living this, you know, this lifestyle of now same thing. I go and train my clients. I go to shoots, I would go to the gym and then I would go get my back pills. And I started to notice that I was very lethargic and I would go to the gym and I would lay back and do bench press and I had, I had no strength and I was losing weight and I would sit up and I'd get very lightheaded and I started having fainting spells, thankfully in my apartment and my anxiety was through the roof because I've had these fainting spells and I'm thinking I'm going to be driving one day and I'm going to faint and take out somebody else. So I'm just like, you know, everything's going through the roof. I remember I was doing a shoot where um, I was, we had to get on and off of the hood of a truck. We were shooting, uh, it was actually a cover of a romance novel. I've done quite a few of those, but we were shooting on the, on the hood of a truck. And every time I got off the truck, I was like, I'm about to pass out. Like, I'm going to cause a scene and pass out. So that night I went home and I, I was like, it has to be these pills. I thought like I was just feeling the effects of the pills from the night before. So I didn't get the pills that night. The next morning I woke up, I had another shoot to go to six o'clock in the morning. I'm brushing my teeth and my knees are giving out. Like my body couldn't physically hold my weight. So I called my agency. I said, I can't go to the shoot. I'm going to the emergency room. I went straight to the emergency room. I had major internal bleeding from an uh, intestinal ulcer from taking all these pills. And I didn't notice it because I wasn't passing blood. I wasn't vomiting blood. I wasn't urinating. Like there was no blood like showing, but I had, but I was, like I said, I was losing weight. My blood levels, my red blood cell count was super low. And they're like, yeah, you, uh, you know, you are in a bad, in a really bad way. And that was the last time that I took those pills and I came out of the hospital and I kind of made a, a, a bad choice in, in, I told my agency, like, I need to get healthy. I, they put me on iron supplements, but I basically just cocooned myself. I, I just put myself in my house and I sat there for six months. I didn't model. I trained clients much like sparingly because I just, I said, okay, I need to sit there and like get healthy and like let my blood cell count. Re but, but my mental health went to like, part of my language, but it went to shit. Like, absolutely, because I was now flooded with these 
15 years of these traumas that I've been so you know nicely putting in little compartments and dealing with and all these distractions that I had, they all came flooding in and I'm alone and I'm you know sober for the first time in my life, but I'm also sick at the same time. And that's when I said, I was 35 at the time and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to fight through this and I have to battle through this. I obviously this route that I've been taking and this plan that I've had hasn't worked. So I'm going to now relent and I'm going to therapy. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to take all this money that I've been spending because that was always an excuse. It's too expensive. It's too expensive to go to therapy. Not too expensive to spend $40 a day on back pills or to you know, spend $500 on, you know, nitrous or whatever, like all the, I found money for those things. So I relented and I went right to therapy. I found a wonderful therapist who I worked with for, uh, for about two years in the beginning, I was going there every week and I started to go every couple weeks, but that was heavy lifting, man. Let me tell you, like, yeah, it was, it was extremely heavy lifting. I have never, I had never to that point been a functioning sober adult. I always had something. I always had a distraction. Even when I was I was sober, but I was working out too much, traveling was a distraction. Or you know, dating or like there was always a distraction. There was always some kind of so this was the first time at 35 that I had to learn and now deal with all these things that like I said I'd been pushing down and just like ignoring for the longest time and it was extremely hard but i had great help in in the therapist that i work with she was a wonderful woman and i learned slowly how to function and how to be a sober functioning adult yeah man that must have been an enormous enormous step and there must have been so much that came up so if we were a fly on the wall during that first therapy session what did it look like did you just kind of explode with everything? Did it take a little bit of time to kind of bring things out? What did that look like? Massive anxiety, massive anxiety, because, you know, I'm going to a therapist for the first time. I'm taught, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, like she was wonderful in that she let me lead the conversation, but so I just started to talk and slowly became more comfortable and it's incredible. Like, I, I see a therapist now just more as like a check-in. Like that was that was a necessity and, and we worked through some really hard stuff together and, and it was but I, I recently started going back to a therapist about I'd say eight months ago because I was you know how we, we make fitness a priority in our life. You know, we, we go to the gym, we eat, whatever it is we do, we stretch, we do whatever it is, yoga, whatever your thing is, you make your physical fitness a priority. And I was just like, I need to make my mental health a priority. And now, now I found somebody here in Texas that I go to like every six months, six weeks or so, just like a, just a check-in, just like a, you know, it's nice to have somebody to, you know, share these, uh, share these things with, but yeah, that, that beginning part was, so I'll tell you a funny story. It's kind of, it's a little bit embarrassing, but this is like, this is me learning the mindset. So I started going back to the gym. It, the gym was always my happy place, was always my, my sanctuary. You know, it was the place where I felt, you know, most like at peace. And 
But because of going there when I was taking these pills, it became a place of anxiety because I wasn't as strong as I was. I couldn't, I didn't have my balance. Like I was just like, so I had to battle back to going to the gym and that was a hard thing to do. But I, you know, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm absolutely going to, you know, go back to the gym. So I'd go to the gym and then I'd come back and I'd go to the grocery store and I'd get some, whatever the soup of the day was, and I'd get some sushi. And that would kind of be like, you know, that was, that's what I would do. And I found myself and I'm going to, you know, I'm getting back into it and I'm starting to get back into a better routine. And I notice I want to go get some sushi and I want to get some soup. And I, I went back to my therapist and I'm like, am I addicted to soup and sushi? Because I find myself compelled to go. And, but that's just, I didn't know the difference between a routine and addiction because that's what my mindset was towards like, okay, I'm done my day now. What, and now it's time to go get my substance or now it's time to go get my, and she's like, no, Jonathan, that's just routine. It's okay to like have a routine like that. But that's, that's the truth. Like I said, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's, it's just, it's the, it's the reality of like what I had to learn. Yeah. And you had no example of the difference between the two, right? Like it was like, how do I know I'm not leaning on this in an, in an unhealthy way? Cause it sounds like you had this incredible level of self-awareness that you've always known that there's this addictive trait and quality within you. And it's, you know, very, very normal to say, well, I've had challenges with food before. And, you know, this is always the biggest challenge that I find of eating disorders is like, you can give up all of these different drugs and pills that you're taking, but you can't give up food, you can give up certain types, but you can't give up eating food full stop. And that's the same mechanism that you can, you know, essentially have your eating disorders around is like you have to consume something so it makes sense that you would have had those question marks around something like okay i'm feeling compelled to do this you know there is like i feel like kind of my mind's leading me instead of my, my you know my conscious choice here but then like you said you just got to realize the difference between like just genuine enjoyment and having like a healthy relationship with these things versus an addiction but unless you really knew the difference but at that stage like you mentioned you had never been kind of fully functioning at all it's like how would you possibly even know the difference yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that's exactly it. And uh, I had a very healthy, I started to have a much healthier uh, relationship with food because, you know, weed was a big thing too with regards to bulimia because, you know, you, you smoke weed and you get the munchies and, you know, you just want to eat a bunch of food. So that just perpetuated that. So I finally put all that stuff behind me and I can now proudly say that I'm six and a half years sober from that, from everything else as well. I had, I found for myself too, I had to stop drinking caffeine because, that was a slippery slope for me. Well, I mean, I, I would, I quit taking Adderall, but I needed something that would get me pepped up and kept me, get me going. And I was drinking over 3,500 milligrams of caffeine a day. Cause so I'd have eight, like of the tall monsters. I'd have my pre-workout, I'd have a coffee. And I was just, so I was like, I just need to cut this out too. And so for as much of my life that I've spent working very hard at altering my state of consciousness, like, being messed up or being under the inebriated or being under the influence, I now really cherish and love just not changing that alt, like that state of consciousness. I I'm very aware of that. I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't have any stimulants. I won't take anything or put anything in my body that will change my state of consciousness. And I also know that like with the, the Amsterdam story, all it's going to take is that little flip of a switch. So if somebody's like, Hey, I take these CBD gummies. They're really great for me. They make me loosen up and really relax. And I'm like, I don't think I should mess around with that because that's a that's a slippery that's a slope for me. Because I if I if it if it feels just a little bit too good, then 
I can't do that. And I just know that I have hard lines that are, that are set for me. And I, I know my boundaries and I just am not willing to compromise them. And like I said, I've, I've been, I've been sober for a while and I'm finally living, uh, I'm not living to my extremes. Like my dad always, like I said before with my father, he said that your, your greatest asset and your worst asset is your drive. And, you know, it can take you to dark places or you can take it to super high places. And, He's always like, you have to learn how to live a balanced lifestyle. Balance is the key word, balance. And I can now say that I'm living a, a healthy, balanced lifestyle where I, you know, I, I, I do work out six times a week. I'll go to the gym and I do play hockey four times a week, like we talked about before. But that's a good balance for me because I'm not doing cardio at the gym. Before, like, I noticed even two years ago, I was going to the gym seven days a week, I was playing hockey four days a week, and I was running six miles every day in the 110 degree, 45 degree Celsius Texas heat. And I was like, okay, that's the addictive Jonathan. I need to cut the running out because I need to save these knees. And between those two, I'm getting more than enough physical activity. So learning that balance and being self-aware to catch myself when I'm starting to slip up or you know, whatever, like, like seeing those things. If my body's sore now, I don't take a, take two ibuprofen and go to the gym and power through. I'll take a day off. Like, like I said to you before, I have a hockey tournament this weekend. I'm going to have, I think five games in three days. I'm not going to the gym any, like any one of those days. Cause I've got five hockey games in three days. So, you know, it'll spread itself out. So I've, I've become sure. a lot more self-aware with that. And I've tried to practice that. Yeah. Do you fear ever falling back into that trap? Or do you think that all the work that you've done now will essentially provide that foundation that you never had before and was kind of the reason you kept falling back, right? It's because you had all of this trauma that you hadn't dealt with. And then it just kind of kept compounding on itself with maybe the shame of addiction, the situation that happened with your modeling, the not being good enough. And, you know, every single day where you're holding this dark secret is one day extra that you hold this heaviness, this weight on your shoulders, right? So it's like you had all the trauma that you didn't deal with. You probably didn't grieve in the correct well it's not really the correct way but in the way that you needed to for your mom's death and then you had all of these other situations on top and you've now finally gone through that process of therapy you're getting those checkpoints you know your vices you know the things that will lead you down that slippery slope but do you still live with that fear that okay i've fallen back before but is it there the potential of it in your eyes you know essentially happening again yeah that's a great question and i can honestly say like I, I don't have that fear. I mean, you never know what the future holds, but I know for who I am and who I practice being on a, on a regular basis, I guard my sobriety very more than almost anything in my life. I guard my sobriety. And, you know, I'm, like I said, with regards to accidentally ingesting something that might, you know, trigger that or something or putting myself in situations where I am around those kinds of things I'm very conscious of those kinds of things and, and the people that you hang out with and that kind of stuff. And I don't feel myself um, compelled to reach for something. Like I'm, I'm much better at thinking through and feeling my feelings and dealing with them. And yeah, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think so because like I said, I'm very, very, uh, stringent and very like just stable in my sobriety and 
my one of my biggest fears is accidentally ingesting alcohol because like if I go to a, 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 a restaurant and they have a chicken and wine sauce, I'll be like, ditch the uh, wine okay. sauce. I'll just have a dry chicken. I don't even want to like test it out. Like there was an instance uh, a couple years after I had pancreatitis where it was Valentine's Day. I was working for my father and one of the ladies in the office got like an edible arrangement bouquet or whatever. And there were chocolate covered strawberries. I had four strawberries and I almost had to go to the hospital because I had my pancreatic flare up. turns out there was liqueur in the chocolate on the strawberries. So it, it was that like sensitive. So I, you know, I, I go to hockey and, you know, having beers in the locker game is a locker room after the game is a big part of it for a lot of, a lot of people that I play with guys and girls and I'm okay with being around it. And, you know, they all know that I'm the sober guy and, and I just have no desire to at all. And I think it's because of, of doing that work and, and, and learning the tools on how to, how to deal with our, our stresses. And, and of course, you know, my life is not all sunshine and rainbows. All, you know, it's like life is life as it is for all of us. We have our ups and downs and I, I really enjoy feeling those ups and downs and having the tools now to navigate those ups and downs as opposed to just reaching for something as a, you know, a bandaid or, or a distractor or whatever, just having the tools to like really think about and be introspective and like, you know, was I wrong in this situation or what happened or, you know, whatever, like just, just learning those things and, and accepting things for the way they are and accepting a big thing for me is, is forgiveness. And a big thing that I've learned, and this is kind of a recent thing too, is um, I forgive myself for the things that I've done and the mistakes that I've made in my life. Like I was trying to do my best with what I had at the time. And yeah, looking at it now, and if I went back, sure, I would do things a lot differently, but I was just trying to do my best. I also forgive myself for the things that have happened to me that were out of my control that I feel shame or guilt for like losing my mom or like the sexual assault. I forgive myself for that because those are situations that were brought into me out of my control and that's okay. Like that's, it's, it's just, it's a fact of the matter and I can say, you know what, I can get through this. I can forgive myself for that. So I think forgiveness has been a really big thing for me a really big thing in, in understanding. And, you know, you look back at all the things and the person that you were when you knew this person and, and, you know, understanding that, you know, there are dozens or hundreds of people who know you as a person who no longer exist. When I was, you know, I was, I was a, you know, I could be such a belligerent drunk sometimes. Um, you know, I brought, I burned many bridges and stuff like that. And people, maybe they, maybe they only know me as that kind of person, that person, but that's okay. And I forgive myself for that because we all go through phases and I can't go back and change it. I can't change their mind. They've grown. I'm sure they've changed, whatever. Like I, forgiveness has been a big part of, of me sitting here and then being able to now like talk about this stuff. I thought, I thought I was going to take these things to my grave. People knew that I was sober from alcohol. People didn't know about the eating disorder. People didn't know about the sexual assault and people didn't know about the drugs couple of close friends knew about the drugs, but nobody knew about the other two. No, that's huge, man. And do you think uh, one of the big reasons why you're still here after kind of so many brushes with death and with fatality that 
it's to share your story and to hopefully give others, you know, that opportunity to speak their truth or go find help. That is absolutely why I'm doing this right now is there's, there's also a selfish aspect of me is I feel better the more that I talk about this. So the more that I can get this off my chest and, you know, talk about it, it makes me feel better. But I think that I have gone through these things and gotten to the, where I'm at now and to have this platform and to now open up because yes, I'm living a, a healthy, balanced, happy life. And I can honestly say that, but I think it'd be the wrong thing to do to just keep it to myself, to not share this with other people. And I don't think I'm anything special. I'm just a regular Joe. I've gone through some stuff. Everybody has their story. But for me personally, I think it's important to open up and to share this story and to share my parts of my story or to share my story to help others. Or like I said, to help others who are going through the same thing and who feel like they're broken. I remember I always use the analogy of my Jeep. I have a I have a Jeep outside that, or in my garage, it's, I mean, I'm in Texas, so it's five and a half inch lift. I've got 37 inch tires on it. It's all I've had, it, but I've had it for a long time. And there was a time when I was in Canada when it needed some motor work done to it. But I put my priorities at my addictions and not my getting my vehicle fixed. But on the outside, I kept it sparkled. You know, the tires were always shine. Everything was like every like scratch was touched up. Everything was perfect. On the inside, it was falling apart, and that's how I felt. On the outside, it was like you saw one thing. Yeah, I booked that shoot. Awesome. I'm I'm you know going to the gym, feeling great, doing this. But on the inside, I felt absolutely broken. I yeah. felt like I was never going to be normal again. I thought I would never beat these addictions. I never thought that I would have any semblance of a normal life, whatever that looks like for, you know, for me. And yeah, that's a big reason. That's absolutely a big reason why I'm doing this now is because I want to, if I can connect with one person, one single person, and, you know, they can hear my story and take something from it. And then, man, that means the absolute world to me because... I just want to, it sounds corny, I guess, but I just want to make the world a better place and to help other people. And I just, in, in, in lowering my, my, uh, my veil of my, especially with my social media and stuff, I just put out like, and just opening up and being more real. I just want to help other people. And, you know, I know that there are people out there who are going through things and, and I want help too. I want to, I don't have all the answers. I believe me, I do not have all the answers. Like I want to learn from people and I want to connect with this community and these communities and to learn from people and to bring forward and to continue to grow. And I absolutely think that's a, that's a big reason why I've gone through all this and that there's a purpose to, to what I'm, what uh, I've been through and a necessity to, to drop the, drop it into, or just drop the, the shame and, and the, the fear and to open up. Yeah, I love that, man. And I feel like this conversation today will reach more than one person and we'll make sure that as many people as possible listen. And if you are listening now and you think that someone that you know maybe is in a circumstance where you maybe don't know the full details, but you think it could help them, definitely share this episode with them as well. And Jonathan, where is the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with what you're doing and potentially reach out to you? Where is the best place to connect with you? 
Yeah, I would love for people to reach out to me. I love um, getting messages and hearing from people who are going through things or, or like I said, sharing things with me. Um, on Instagram, you can find me under my name. It's uh, Jonathan Nizel, N-I-Z-I-O-L, or as we say it in Canada and the rest of the world, N-I-Z-I-O-L. <laughs> Um, my TikTok is the same. I'm just getting going on TikTok. I'm going to start a YouTube channel under the same name and, uh, Facebook as well. It's all, it's all the same. It's just my name, um, Jonathan Nizel. but I, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. I love to connect with people. I'm talking a lot more about this stuff on my own, um, personal Instagrams and stuff like that and putting out, you know, shorter videos of stuff that I've, I've learned or taken away and just wanting to continue this conversation. So that's the best place to find me. And uh, yeah, I really hope that it, it, this reaches some people and I would love to hear from anybody and everybody. Absolutely. We'll make sure it's all in the show notes below. But Jonathan, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for opening up today and sharing your story. I appreciate it. Thanks, Elliot. I really appreciate you, man. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from and go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes also if you like the episode please don't forget to give it a five-star rating I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have so reach out to me on social media you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one